Let's begin, shall we? Shall we? Hey, you're hanging in the dummy room. I'm Jody Havnot. I'm joined by Mr. Nate Demmel. How you doing, Nate? Good. How you doing, Jody? Great, bro. Uh, so I got a little older since the last episode. Yes, happy birthday. Thanks, man. And uh, that's about it. Nothing new over here. Um, but we do have a special guest tonight. Our very first special guest on the dummy room. Our first guest, and uh, he is a, uh, a friend of mine, an old friend. And any other show or podcast would probably introduce him by saying something like, uh, he's the owner, he's the guy behind Mystery Room Mastering in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They might say that he is a, uh, he's a recording engineer, a mastering guru. They might mention that he plays with Tommy Stinson from The Replacements and Bash and Pop here and there. He was a former member of Screeching Weasel. But with all due respect, fuck that. I'm going to call him out as a uh, hell of a singer-songwriter, founding member of the greatest band from Wisconsin, Yesterday's Kids. How's it going, Mr. Justin Perkins? It's going great. I don't know about all that stuff, but you know, <laughs> thanks for having me on. And I, th- I think we've known each other since the late 90s, is that right? Yeah. I think it was in the 90s. had to be. For sure. Um, I got a quick little timeline here for us. Um, so I don't okay. remember exact dates, but I, it was probably in 1998. I met you at a show at the concert cafe and I believe it was a screwball show. Yeah. I believe that I probably asked you to do a seven inch after that right away. You did. And it was great. <laughs> I'll never forget that because for one, we got to go to a nice studio for once. And we also somehow talked our parents into letting us take the day off of school to go up and record that. So that was <laughs> pretty awesome yeah so we met on maybe like a friday night or something like that and then i remember the next night i went to i don't you're probably not gonna remember this but i went to a house show in appleton to see ryan portanga's band the night stalkers and you showed up i I do remember that i just saw him last night or two nights ago at a cookout and yeah it was like a weird house show across from the taxi cab place in appleton I remember yes. that. And I remember <laughs> I ended up crashing at your dad's house that night. I don't know if you remember that, but every time I'd you know, make my way over to Appleton or Green Bay, I I I think I ended up crashing there. And I remember like the first time going in there, I remember the basement had a bunch of, you know, primitive recording gear. <laughs> and yep. every time I stayed there, the amount of gear just kept growing and I just it was obvious that you were going to do what you do, you know? Um, yeah. He was pretty cool, all that stuff, you know, letting people crash over and letting me record bands down there. I mean, that's basically how I got into it. Yeah. Um, I remember all the early Amazing Larry demos. Yeah, we did that down there. I mean, some of that stuff we did was just for me to practice recording, you know, to have material to record. You know, we did yeah. like we did like an Everly Brothers tribute as if the Ramones would have played it. And yep. Just, just for the hell of it, just because 
so I could get better at recording. Yeah. Dude, I still have that. I still have those songs. <laughs> yeah, so does Tito probably on a cassette tape somewhere. I think it was only mixed to cassette tape. Maybe we made a CD of it. I, I don't really know, but it was pretty fun. I think I have a that. CD of it. Oh. Maybe you transferred it to CD for me. But yeah, so Jody, this um, Amazing Larry was um, the band prior to Yesterday's Kids. Oh, right on. And you can help me out here, Justin, but that's... You started sending Amazing Larry demos to Ben Weasel, of course, correct? Yeah, somehow there's a guy named Todd from Green Bay. Do you remember Todd Kellner? Oh, yeah. Somehow, and I didn't know this existed. I was a little late on the computer train, which is kind of funny because now I have a bajillion computers. But <laughs> he was talking about this thing called the Screeching Weasel message board and how he was telling Ben that he should listen to us for some reason. And for whatever reason, Ben agreed and you know, asked us to send him something. I'm sure we sent him a cassette tape. I don't know if it would have been a CD, but yeah, we definitely sent him something to listen to. And at that time, we were called Amazing Larry, only because when we were in about sixth grade, that was the name of our first band. Um, and it ended up, we did some other stuff in middle school, and then we ended up being the same three guys, me, Tim, and Joe. So just for lack of imagination, we just reverted back to Amazing Larry, which is a really stupid name, but when you're in fifth grade and like I don't know if you know where that came from, the, the Pee Wee's Big Adventure movie. He there's a scene where he is in his basement. He's trying to find his bike and explain, you know, what it looks like. These there's a guy talking, not paying attention, and his name is Amazing Larry. This box contains over two hundred and seventeen bits and pieces of information. Evidence. <gasps> is this something you could share with the rest of us, Amazing Larry? I did not know that. We thought that was hilarious for a band name in fifth, maybe it was sixth grade, but yeah, we knew that it wasn't a great name, and Ben actually suggested that we pick a better name, which yeah. I think was a good idea. Um, but yeah, we probably just needed something to write down on the tape, you know, when it was done. Like we got to put something, so that's why we that's why we had that temporary name. But it was pretty stupid. That's really cool. So it was uh, I always wondered this, and I don't know if I've ever asked you, but how did how does Ben go about asking you to change your name? Is he like, fuck that name, or is he polite about it? <laughs> he was really polite about it, and he helped. I remember being on the phone with him for like an hour. We were trying to brainstorm. You know, We were looking through albums to maybe grab like a song title from somebody and use it as the band name. And um, he, he definitely spent a good hour on the phone with me about it. And then somehow Tim, I don't know who he came up with this with, but he came up with Yesterday's Kids because it was like a Runaways song title or something yep. like that, um, and not one of their more, not one of their more known songs. Not that they had a lot of big songs, but yeah, it was just kind of an obscure Runaways song, and we just thought that was a good band name. And at that point, we were probably sick of trying to think of one, so it just kind of made the cut. Cool. <laughs> so cool. when you first get signed to Panic Button. Um, I don't remember if the Lillingtons were out or if Moral Crooks was out. Um, I don't know if you guys were the first. Do you remember? Do you recall? I don't. I mean, it was pretty early on. Um, yeah. But I really don't remember what what release number it was. Okay. But I, don't, I, don't, I don't know either, but you were certainly in good company there. and Yeah, I remember it being a, a pretty new thing, um, the record label. 
and it was kind of an exciting time. You know, we we basically just went up to that studio in Green Bay where you sent us originally, Simple mm-hmm. Studios, and we recorded like 12 songs and sent it to Ben, I think. And the funny thing is that we did some obs- more obscure cover songs like by the Go-Go's and the Diodes. And I, I don't yeah. know if he thought they were our songs, but I got the feeling he might have been a little bit bummed out that there was a couple of cover songs that he had catch on to right away. <laughs> so we and we ended up not putting those on the release. We we slimmed it down to like eight songs. And, yeah, but he still agreed to do the the EP. You know, we 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 went back and touched a few things up, but we we just cut. I, I don't know if we did any cover songs on that, but just for the sake of keeping it simple, as far as legal, getting the rights yeah. and stuff, we Actually, didn't want to the, mess around with that. The uh, the diodes cover is on there on the first record. Yeah, and I honestly don't have. A dialed record and like at the time i just knew it from the rhino power pop compilations that were okay. coming out i think there was two volume one and two um just seemed like a cool track and somehow we learned it next thing you know we yeah so i forgot that that actually made the cut but i remember liking that go-go song too can't stop the world yeah i don't, yeah, I don't know remember. I don't know if I ever heard that version that you guys did, but that's probably for the better. But it was it's a great <laughs> song, and so yeah. Anyways, I don't know if Ben realized how many cover songs were in the batch, but I don't remember him saying too much about it. Just like, yeah, great, we'll put it out, finish it up, and so we thought we were doing a demo, but he he convinced us that it was releasable. Which, listening back, I don't know if I agree with, but at the time, uh-huh. it was just exciting to have. Somebody put out your music and you didn't have to do the work of releasing it. <laughs> Which back then was a little bit of, you know, you had to press discs. Now it's really easy to release music. You just throw it on iTunes. But back yep. then there was something to it and the distribution aspect of it. Certainly. Um, so I I disagree with you. I think the record's really good. I actually, uh, on the way home from work tonight, I put that on and cranked it up pretty loud. It sounds pretty good, hmm. man. <laughs> there's uh it's a little short but there's there's a lot of good songs on there yeah it was um, it was a weird thing because it was writing it, it's too long to be an ep but it wasn't a full album and you know it's just i think we should have put more effort into it somehow but it is what it is yep so before we get into to too much screeching weasel talk um so you when you're in your dad's basement recording you're recording your own band, whether it was, uh, I think you were doing screwball stuff down there and then Amazing Larry, but um, do I remember you recording Leghounds? Did you record a Leghounds record in your basement? Yeah. If anybody doesn't know, the Leghounds um, later became the Jetty Boys. It's, it's Drew and Eric from the Jetty Boys. So Great band, and I don't remember if, if it actually came out as a release, but they did a lot of tracks, and I remember, I remember them specifically because I was you know recording down there, and it sounded pretty terrible because it's a basement and I'm like you know why can't i get this to sound like this record and i was trying really hard and all of a sudden the leg counts came in and i didn't i didn't do anything differently but it just sounded pretty awesome i'm like what's what the hell you know and then it, that's when a light bulb went off like you know the band has to be very good too and like they were such a good live band that you know they just came in and cranked it out and i'd have to look back to see if that was an actual release but the funny thing we did I did record them in Green Bay at that studio, and Reverend Norb had us do three albums at one time, you know, like a long week. You know, they had like really? 30, because he wanted it to be like the first three Ramones albums where they all kind of sound the same. <laughs> right so on. he's like, we got to record 
all 33 songs in like, you know, it was a ridiculous um, short amount of time. But, you know, so we recorded them all at once and then we eventually, you know, mixed them here and there. And it, the, the three Leghounds albums. So that's why I don't know if anything from my dad's basement came out officially as for the Leghounds. But um, yeah, such a great band. Yeah. Um, I used to, you gave me uh, a tape back in the day um, at this point, like 20 years ago almost. And I think I still probably have it. And it's a Leghounds tape, and it's just the the whole, the J card is just handwritten, covered. So I don't know how many, I mean, the Leghound songs were all, what, like a minute, minute and a half? Yeah, they, <laughs> they were, were long all songs. Short, so. Yeah, they're pretty short and fast. So that's what I'm saying. I can't, I don't remember a particular release with like an official album cover or anything until we started doing the stuff with Norb. You know, he yeah. just kind of like, signed them up for three albums and cranked them all out in one sitting which it's huh. a cool approach though yeah anyway so jody you got any thoughts on any of this yet or <laughs> well i am kind of curious how did you originally just discover music in the first place when you were a kid justin i mean what did it for you my dad was always into music you know he had a turntable with a fair amount of vinyl but he was also gone a lot because he's a truck driver so it was kind of came in spurts but he had a guitar sitting around but it was of course left-handed because he was left-handed okay anyway the the main thing you know so i had this guitar sitting there and um we also inherited a guitar from like his uncle that got it through some family members but didn't play it he had it sitting in a closet so i inherited this like 60s gibson that i still have and it's pretty amazing guitar but my fifth grade teacher um Every Friday after lunch, you know, we got out of school at like 2.30 on Fridays anyway, but basically after lunch, if you were a good kid, you got to go in his classroom and he would bring out his guitar and he put lyrics up on the overhead projector, which kind of tells you what, what era it was. It's probably like, <laughs> nine. I don't even know what year I was in fifth grade, like 1990, something like that. Right. But basically he would do like a class sing-along and he'd sing like Beatles songs and David Bowie and couple other ones but i just thought that was a lot of fun and just to see somebody that close playing the guitar making it sound good looks like maybe i could do that so right. uh, so you got that going and then that's right when nirvana hit and i'm like you know we were coming out of the 80s with all this ridiculous music like mc hammer vanilla ice um, <laughs> even the 80s rock music was ridiculous like poison and stuff so once once I heard Nirvana, I was like, "Wow, this is really simple. Like I can hear guitars and bass, and you know, I could hear everything and identify it." So that kind of got us into music, and then started digging into more underground stuff. You know, and gotten the whole Lookout Records thing, and <laughs> right just kind of went went from there. So just uh, that's basically it. I think that teacher was kind of a, a big uh, influence. That's cool. Right on, man. So, yeah, when I first met you, you had uh, uh, Ramones posters and Lookout Record posters on your wall. And um, so you were already well into the world of pop punk for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can get a little bit obsessive, like, personality-wise. Like, if I find something I like, I want to know everything. I want to have every release and just really dig in and be entrenched in it rather than just having a record here or there, you know, I took right. it, get into things. I can get into things kind of seriously for better or worse. So, yeah, you know, I dug through that whole lookout catalog and I, I didn't like everything, but a lot of stuff was, I thought was really great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I remember around that time, that 98, 99 time, you, you put out, you recorded a CD and it was all cover songs. And I think your, you had a little description that said, um, there's, there's a lot of good songs out there. Why write more? And, you know, you were probably like 18, 18 or 19 at the time. And I still have this CD, but um, I haven't, I haven't looked at it for a while, but I remember there was, there was, um, there was a Plimsolls cover on there and uh, like an off Broadway. I don't remember the names of these songs, but um, yeah, I remember Broadway. And there were some really just kind of, you know, not normal covers, not normal bands, you know? Yeah. And it was like, holy shit, you know? And I just always thought, this guy's like really fucking young to be digging this deep, you know. So it always kind of stood out to me that you were, you were like that. Like you said, you kind of when you get into something, you kind of collect it all, you know. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky to have a couple of really good record stores in the area, like Exclusive Company. You know, they had. Yep. This is back before the vinyl, whole vinyl thing. So you could get all that stuff for like a dollar, and um, you know, I just. Again, a lot of it was just me practicing recording. Like I wasn't trying to do cover songs to outdo the real version or anything like that. But I just wanted to have some material to practice recording, you know, without spending the time writing the songs and stuff. You know, I was more interested in the the technical side of just right. figuring yeah. out how to make stuff sound good. Yeah. So you didn't really have anything invested in the like creative side. You were just doing it to learn your craft. Yeah, because I think at this time I was still in high school, so I only had so much t- <laughs> And I was probably starting to skip a lot of school at this point, but, you know, there's only so much time, and just, like, thought, might as well reimagine these existing songs, just practice. So when you first started recording, were you using analog gear, or were you already in- was it already into the computer days? It, the very first recordings were, like, a cassette 8-track okay. recorder. I used to and have we- one of those, too, man. Old school Tascam. Exactly. A lot of fun. You know, we were at the music store, you know, the instrument store in town, and this guy put up a one of those flyers with the little paper tabs that you rip off, and he just said, you know, that he has this 8-track for rent. And a couple... He, so he brought over, like, an 8-track and, like, a, a milk crate of microphones and cables, and <laughs> I was basically... I think I must have paid the most attention when he sh- dropped it off and showed us how to use it. And then next thing you knew, I was the recording guy. That's awesome. Um, then other bands started hearing that and like asked if I could record them and wasn't trying to start a studio by any means, but I started to get a little more interested in in it. That's cool. No computers back then. In fact, I used to mix to like a mini. Do you guys remember mini discs? Like dats ta- and shit. Not even dats. Um, mini discs were like little CDs basically, but it was more like a cartridge, and oh, they okay. didn't take off. I, don't I remember really seeing remember if those. Yeah, I remember seeing a few releases, you know, like Radiohead might have, and not because they're trying to be weird like they usually do, but mini disc, you know, it almost took off, but it was, didn't, didn't really take off, but it, it was digital. It was like the cheapest digital thing I could get. So I would record right. mixes to those or cassette tapes and eventually just record them to like a CD, standalone CD player. Right. Yeah, I remember I had a couple Japanese bands, they put out the mini disc. And I remember I ordered them, and I got them, and I was like, what the fuck is this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what, what do I do with this? As so, if, yeah. you know, CD artwork is small enough, now i got these mini discs. It, it just it didn't catch on <laughs> yeah. at all. Um, yeah, I didn't go into computers until, like, after the year 2000, I think. Oh, eventually, okay. I, eventually, I gave in and just got a computer to yeah. record, record the mixes on, too. But, you know, that's when I started doing, 
you know, I got the internet and started doing more research, finding out more stuff about bands, and I eventually discovered the Screeching Weasel message board for myself, but I was never real active on it. I wasn't either yeah, back in those days. Later on, I think I might have, but back in the early days, like when Todd was telling us about it, I had no idea what it was, but I guess it was a community. Right. And I think Todd being older, Ben might have taken it more seriously. Um, than like some younger people. I have no idea. Yeah, Todd was a really cool guy. I remember uh, meeting him up at shows and stuff, and then um, turns out he worked for some company that my sister also worked for, but he worked in Appleton, and and my sister worked in Madison, and uh, it was like they knew each other from like manager meetings or whatever, you know? And um, yeah, it was really fucking weird, but um, yeah, Todd was, Todd was a really cool guy. I just I haven't seen him forever, you know? It seems like he lives up north Wisconsin now, um, as far as I can tell on Facebook. But yeah, um, um, yeah, him, Todd and Ryan, and of course Time Bomb Tom, like all those guys, are really important. You know, they played an important part of creating this whole Wisconsin music scene. Really, I mean, I can't yeah. imagine. I can't imagine what it'd be like if they weren't around, and especially Tom, like Tom for sure, because you know we just we got so spoiled with the concert cafe. In rock and roll high school, yeah. I think I assume that when when you go on tour, you're going to play like every city's going to have a concert cafe, and it's going to be great. And then we discovered that's not the case at all. And, yeah, uh, kind of sucked. Yeah, so I, I've Jody Jody's band played at the concert ca- or at the rock and roll high school, right, Jody? Yeah, long time uh, ago. I think yeah, and they played two thousand and one or two or something like that. And you you said. And it's kind of funny, Justin might think this is funny too, but uh, he said they played with Boris Sprinkler, which it seems like Boris Sprinkler kind of played on every show, didn't Yeah, that could, <laughs> have, been, that could <laughs> have been any given week. You know, uh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, but um, Justin can verify that the shows up there were, they were always good, but they were always well, well attended. But yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean... I don't... Green Bay, That's it's not a real big city, you know, to have three or four you know, punk shows a week and have them all be, you know, packed, not packed, but, you know, decently attended is, it's yeah, pretty enough, remarkable. Enough to keep it going. I mean, what, what shut it down was that the city basically shut it down and it didn't go out of business because it wasn't doing well. Um, the city, I think the city claimed he needed another set of bathrooms. Okay. And si- since he didn't own the venue, he wasn't going to invest the money. And it was just kind of a whole kind of gimmick to shut it down. The city right. didn't, didn't like what was going on, but um, can't be having so much fun, right? Shut exactly, that shit down. That sucks. Yeah, that was a, the street that it was on. Jody was. I remember hanging out there. It was. Um, it was right next to. So it was obviously a punk rock club, and then right next to it was. I I think there was a there was a porno shop, and then uh, a punk rock bar, and then just down the street there was like a kind of like a. Uh, like a jock bar? Am I not a, a sports bar kind of place? I think, I think yeah, that's right, right? Yeah, and at one point there was a hot and now that you could walk to. That was pretty awesome. A what? A hot and now? Remember those? You get like oh. a 39 cent cheeseburger and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So is, has it been like totally gentrified by now? I don't know, dude. I don't know. It might be Green Bay gentrified, which isn't saying much. I mean, <laughs> they did put in a, a nicer bar in there, but nothing... Oh, was it the Speakeasy? Is that what it was called? Speakeasy was the bar that was there, but you know, next door to the ca- concert. Oh, cafe. okay. So the cafe is a bar now. Okay. But yeah, right in there. I mean, 
than it was like 10 years ago. I don't know if it still is. I'm assuming it is. Okay, have- so my my wife, my wife Tracy, she never went to a show with me there, but I have told her about the pizza place across the street down the block, uh, Jake's Pizza. Right. And how fucking wonderful it was. And I got to ask you, do you know if that's still there? That's the important question. It is, but as... I'm 99% sure it moved across the river to a new location, and it, it, uh, it may have even closed down for like a period of time, but I know it's still there okay. in Green Bay, but um, and it still apparently takes forever to get a pizza just because of the way they cook it. Yeah. It's got to be a certain way, but that was, yeah, that was definitely a thing. Yeah. So, Jody, you could go in there on like any given like show day, and there was a band sitting there eating. Right. <laughs> like, I swear, like... Um, I remember we went and had dinner with Marky Ramone's band, minus yeah. Marky Ramone. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And um, yeah, I think you were there, right? And the guys from Pinky were there. Yeah, I mean that was just the place that you went to eat. Yeah, um, I remember I had pizza there with Dillinger Four once, and I was just walking and Dillinger Four sitting there eating pizza. It's like what the fuck, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just that whole street. And then at on like a Friday and Saturday night, it was if I it was like a cruise street, right, Justin? So it was like. All the fucking kids would cruise down the street with their cars, and it, yeah. it, it was kind of like a, I don't know, like a bad recipe, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, and nothing really especially bad happened, but like I said, the city just wanted to maybe clean it up, and it just, you know, looked a little suspicious. But, you know, Tom ran a pretty tight ship, as you've seen. You know, he wasn't afraid to throw somebody out if they are being stupid or... Right. You know, you yep. just pick them up, put them over his shoulders, and they were gone. You know, <laughs> being a teenager, that was scary to me. I, you know, I wasn't going to do anything stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, the figs, the wonderful figs got, uh, I don't know if you remember that, Justin, but they were supposed to play a show and they showed up, but they never made the show because they got arrested in the back parking lot for smoking weed. Yeah. And they wrote a song about it. Yeah. Damn. They have a song called Let's Get Arrested. I rem- yeah, I remember like the next time they came, like Tom Tom would always introduce the bands like this totally over the top, overblown introduction, and he was like yelling like you know we we kept an eye on them, we we didn't let them go out in the parking lot, they were finally here, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, yeah, That's that great. was yeah, wonderful place. I have I didn't live there, but I started driving there the three and a half hour drive just because it, there were so many good shows there. Yeah, and people will post, you know, on Facebook, you know, pictures of old flyers they found. Like, not show flyers, but like the monthly calendar. It's yeah. pretty ridiculous to see, like, you know, any given month there's at least, you know, there was a show almost every night, but, you know, at least a half dozen of them were pretty top-notch yeah. shows that I would go to again today. Yeah, um, see Boris yep. every time. <laughs> they got a lot of practice. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. Um so yeah, so back to Justin Perkins land. Um I first saw the screwballs there, of course, and I remember somebody had told me that you guys were super young dudes, you know, high school guys and were playing the the kind of punk rock that I liked. So and upon the first time I saw you, I just remember uh Tim and Brian just completely fucking off the wall, you know, jumping around and guitars flying. But you guys were still, you know, tight as shit you know and the songs were juvenile but you know well crafted yeah i try not to think about the songs because they, <laughs> they were so stupid but you know we had a lot of fun and tom was kind enough to let us play shows fairly often i remember like i didn't do it but one of us were kind of worked up the nerve to 
ask if we could play a show, which is, I was too scared to do it, but I don't, like I said, I don't remember who it was, but someone in the band did that and he let us on a show and just kept having us back. So, you know, again, I don't even think I'd be sitting here doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for Tom, because, you know, he just let us into a cool world of bands and like from us playing with all these bands, that's how I started getting more recording projects and it just kind of snowballed. So, I mean, if it wasn't for Tom, I'd probably not have any sort of music career or yeah. anything like that. Well, so uh, I, I really owe him a lot. That's awesome. And, yeah. uh, yeah, he was always really nice to me. Like I met him the first time I went there and I remember just telling him that I, you know, drove three and a half hours from lacrosse over and, um, he was, he was always nice to me. And I, I think he, I don't know if he appreciated that, you know, um, he knew I just, he, he, I liked going to shows and shit. So, um, he was always just a good guy to me. So, yeah. And he just did it for the love of music. You know, there were certain, like when, it, I don't know who he flew in from Japan. Uh, I say teen generate. Yeah. yeah. But that, I feel like he flew in a band from another country and it was, very not well not very well attended but they were you know they're a great band so he clearly lost his ass on that but you know he just did it for the love of music and maybe he made up with it for like a show of a band he didn't really love but a lot of kids came you know he, he knew how to at least make it work and he put in a lot of his own time and money and energy so and yeah. he's still doing it but just at a, on a little slower pace um yeah, is he is he still running the exclusive company in Green Bay then? As far as I know, he's still managing it. Yeah. Okay. Um, he he posts on Facebook a lot about how he's working or this is on sale or, and he he has a lot of bands. You know, he has bands play behind the store sometimes. You know, on holiday weekends. Yeah, I got to get up there one of these times, man, and just go into the exclusive company, just say hi to him. You know, he probably won't even know who the fuck I am at this point, but. Never know. I feel really bad because I think it was two years ago now he had a 50th birthday show. It was, it was sort of like a, a rock and roll high school class reunion of sorts. It's like people that, you know, people came out of the woodwork that don't really go to show. And I should have done the same, but I just, I missed it. So I hope he has a 55th birthday bash and I will, I will be there. Yeah. I do remember that. He had uh, the, the new bomb Turks play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Cool. We got to get him on the podcast, <laughs> and he yeah, can do his own yeah. episodes. But anyway, that would be fun. Um, not to dwell on the recording side of things, but you're recording other bands, um, friends' bands and shit. Obviously, uh, the Leghounds become the Jetty Boys, and you record their first record, right? I believe so. Yeah, and it's it's fucking awesome. <laughs> and uh, Jody can expand on that a little bit. We both we're both Jetty Boy guys, so um, oh, you saw the Leghounds progress into the Jetty Boys, of course. And but you know maybe this is a question in general. But was there a band that you that you knew from playing shows with and seeing them locally that you got to record that you were kind of like, holy shit, like this is this is something special. You know what I mean? Was there? Yeah. No, they were definitely one of those bands. It was one of the first. One of our first out-of-town gigs, you know, I think it was in Stevens Point, Wisconsin or something, just happened to be with the Leghounds, and it was all just kind of working together, and they were really impressive. This is actually before Eric was in the band. They had a different bass player, um, but Sean and Drew still sang all the songs, so it was very similar. Um, but yeah, they were, I just remember being really impressed by them even way back then, and you know, they kind of ran their course, and Drew was quiet for a little bit, but then he 
the Jetty Boys were a thing, and I wasn't able to see them live as much, so I didn't fully know what to expect when they hit the studio. But um, I definitely liked, you know, all the the songs that he was writing and the dire- the direction they took. You know, it was a little more of a pop punk direction instead of the punk rock and roll thing, which I like both. But it was almost a surprising turn. You know, I didn't quite expect it. It caught me off guard. Yeah, yeah, and, I was I was taken off guard a little too from from that. So. And with, with the leg hounds, you know, Drew and Sean were splitting the songwriting duties and singing. So the Sean's songs were very rock and roll and kind of funny. And then Drew's songs were also rock and roll, but getting a little more on the serious side. Mm-hmm. So then when the Jetty Boys came along, he was, the, you know, the only, basically the only singer and songwriter. So it's interesting to see him take, you know, all the songs and take it the direction he wanted to go. Right. Yeah. You you told me once that you thought Drew was uh, one of the best guitar players that you've ever worked with. Do you, you know, and uh, Jody's a guitar player, and I know that you know Jody thinks he's a hell of a whaler. So um, yeah, I mean he's got he's got the soloing thing down for sure. Yeah. And like from a recording standpoint, you know, like I said, Norb Norb had us do like three records in probably like five days. So <laughs> you know. Drew had to do a lot of guitar work because, you know, we doubled up the guitars and then all the solos and, like, I don't know, his hands must have been in a lot of pain. <laughs> but um, you wouldn't know it by listening to those three records. You know, he did awesome. And, you know, so he had really good technique. And my point was he was very easy to record because I've recorded some guitarists that even though you have the best guitar and you tune it up, they go and hit a chord and it sounds out of tune. And it's like, man, you just got to learn how to play a power chord in tune and, like, not bend the strings all crazy. And yeah. Point is, he had great technique, and it allowed us to work really quickly and power through all that stuff. Right on. Cool. Why do we have to run away from love? Why do I feel my heart is in your hands? So why don't I feel I don't understand? How things should I? Oh, 
did you get into the whole engineering and mastering side of things? It, it seems like you've done a lot of mastering and mixing. On yeah, stuff. I mean, ba- yeah, back when I was in my late teens, early twenties, we were just playing so many gigs that I didn't, you know, websites were barely a thing then. But I didn't really have to advertise. It was like I'd record a record, and people liked how it sounded, so they would have me rec- record their record. And right. you know, you're out at shows and meeting people, just kind of networking but I, I wasn't trying to do that it just happened really organically and uh you know next thing i knew i was able to just survive off just recording um said the the studio that nate sent us up to in high school was kind of known to be like the where all the good punk rock bands recorded well where all the punk bands recorded and got good sounding recordings you know he just knew how to make people sound good and they ended up getting kind of not a job there but able I got access to the studio. I could bring in my own projects, and cool. that was that was a huge stepping stone because I got out of my dad's basement where there was a lot of limitations, <laughs> and he was happy about that. And you know, I got to be in a nicer studio space, basically, and that just really evolved from there. I mean, it's a slow it's a slow climb. I mean, some of the bands I got to work with, I never would have imagined that I would have a shot to work with. But right. if you do it, you do it long enough, and it, you know, it starts to happen. Yeah, I mean, was that inner like teenager in yourself going, "Damn, I'm I'm working with Ben Weasel here or fucking Tommy Stinson," you know what I mean? Yeah, I've I've had that thought. You know, it's it's kind of like this ladder. You just keep climbing and you look back, and you never think you're going to get there, but then then you do, and it's yeah. I I don't take it for granted. Um, but yeah, I never would have I never would have imagined it at the time when I'm you know listening to their stuff. Totally. Yeah. So, just a quick question. So, like, when you're recording, say, um, like Screeching Weasel or Bash and Pop, when you're involved in that, Justin, and I know you like, uh, like, My Brain Hurts is is a maybe your favorite Screeching Weasel record, and obviously Friday Night is is the great Bash and Pop record. Um, are you? Do you have a hard time not making that new record sound like those records? Um, if, if you understand what I'm asking. Yeah, well, the Bash of Pop record, I, I didn't record too much of it. Um, Tommy did that mostly at, at his house. Um, okay. And I, I basically just mixed that one, and I added some tambourine and backing vocals, you okay. know, all, all the bells and whistles. So that's a little different. Um, with Screech and Weasel stuff, I don't know. I just kind of took what they gave me. I, I, there wasn't a conscious effort, but I knew what not to do, I guess. you know, um, <laughs> I didn't want to make it bad or cheesy and I, you know, I tried my best to to just kind of filter out you know what they're doing and you know try to get it because I, maybe I kind of subconsciously knew what a fan or a listener would want to hear right yeah okay but with, with the Screeching Weasel record the, the, the main one I worked on was First World Manifesto and that, that was Mike Kennedy from All American Rejects producing you know he he did a lot of the production and Stuff like that, where I was mostly engineering, right? Okay. And and honestly, at that point, I was really transitioning into just mastering. So, you know, there was a while where I was still mixing and recording projects, but only maybe some of the more special ones that I wanted to make time for. I just didn't have time to do everything. Um, so it was great that Mike was able to produce and like come up with ideas, and you know, he he really was a good producer. He, he was coming up with drum parts and like how to do drum fills and taking a little vocal line and being like, that's catchy. We should make that a whole chorus, that kind of stuff. Like he really dug into the songs and made them the best they could be. 
Right. Cool. cool. Let me ask you this, man. So what is it? How does it feel to know that you, I mean, like for the leftovers on the, on the move record, that record alone has become totally classic over the years. Like, and that will always be in the pantheon of like classic, like punk rock, pop punk records, like that leftovers record. And some of these Riverdale's records, I mean, you worked on these records that are going to go down in history as like totally classic because they already are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, The Leftovers was another fun one. They they weren't really on my radar, and they just kind of came into town. I was working in Madison at the time, and you know we didn't have a lot of time on that album at all. I mean, we we totally tried to do too many songs in too little time, but we made it work. <laughs> Dude, that's a classic. Kurt sang his ass off. Like, probably I don't even know that. You know, I remember there, there was at least one or two days where he basically sang all day, like no breaks really just <laughs> doing song after song, you know, cause we were doubling all the vocals. He, right. I think he did a lot of the backing vocals himself. I mean, he was just a machine. Um, so, I mean, we really, we didn't have a whole lot of time to work with on that record, but they came in prepared. I don't know. Was that their first album or did they have something before they that? They had something before that, but it wasn't, I don't know. Yeah. Point being, usually when bands are doing like their first album or maybe second, they have so much great material to pull from, and they're like have been playing the songs for a long time. Right. So there's definitely a lot of that helping us out to get it done quickly. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that people still like that. And Kurt actually reached out to me about maybe revisiting that and like really? I don't know, if, I don't think remixing it, but probably remastering it because I actually did master that record back when I probably shouldn't have been mastering records. You know, you know. <laughs> I think it sounds pretty get, good, man. Sounds cool. good, dude. We get stuck in these situations where, like, all the budget is spent on recording, and like, right. it comes to mastering, and there's no budget left, and a lot of people don't know what it is, and a lot of mixing engineers can do sort of mastering. So uh, that was where I was at, at that point in my career. Is like, I guess I can master this if no one else is going to, <laughs> um, and there's no money left. So I would love to remaster it with what I know today. You know, but I think overall, I mean, nobody cares about that stuff, though. I mean, it's great songs and they they uh, played them great. So I, I think it is a class. I should listen to it again. It's been a little while since I listened to it, but oh, it's really good, man. Yeah, it is good, man. One of my favorite things that your name is on is that freaking Tarantula, man. To me, that's one of the best Riverdale's records sonically. It just sounds so good.
Yeah, I remember being happy with the sound, and this is where it gets hard for me to really... I'm too far into it to really judge it from a fan standpoint. Like, right. Where does it sit on the spectrum of the good albums? But it's certainly one of the, my favorite albums I was able to work on, and I think it surprised some people by, you know, how good it was at the time. Totally. I'm one of those people. The yes. one be- the one before that was okay, but I think we were still... That was right when the Riverdales reformed, and they were trying to still figure some things out, but... By the time we did Tarantula, I think they were in full stride and really nailed it. Absolutely. So how do you, at that point, that's right around when you entered the Riverdales, right? You started playing bass for them? I, re- I think I only played maybe like one gig on on bass with the Riverdales. Maybe a, maybe a couple, but I wasn't, I don't even know if I consider myself ever a member of that band. I think, you know, I engineered a couple albums and, you know, I think we did. There was a period of time where we were going out and doing a weekend of shows, and on Friday night we'd do a Riverdale show at a small club, and then Saturday night it would be a Screeching Weasel show, you know, okay. at, at, a, at a bigger venue. Um, so there was there was a period of time where that was going on, and I really only played bass for a, a few of those. Okay. So. I don't really know, and I forgot what your question what the that, question that, was. No, you you answered. I was just asking like how you ended up playing bass for him. I guess you know. Well, I think I think just what it came down to is I think Dan was more comfortable singing and playing guitar, um, live. You know, right. and he's been doing all the methadones and all cheats yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and you know, and there was a couple songs where it maybe warranted having two guitars on the newer stuff, and I think it really just came down to convenience. Um, I think Dan just really preferred playing guitar at the time, and so someone had to play bass. And right. Cool. Didn't, didn't want to have Ben on bass, huh? Probably not. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I always be thought weird. it was. Bec- I always thought it was because maybe Ben wasn't, uh, you know, the best guitar player, and so Dan, you know, would sound better, just more fuller with up, two yeah. guitars, and they just needed a bass player, and you were kind of a logical choice. You were in the fold, and. Yeah, and like I said, we we kind of tag team some of those weekends where we do both bands. So, and then there was a period of time I don't know what happened, but I know I did. I was I, you know I did live sound for a couple of Riverdale shows, so I wasn't actually playing. Um, I think Simon might have been involved. Simon Lamb. Oh, really? Okay. I think I don't know if he did guitar or bass. To, I don't know. I'd have to dig way back, but I played very few Riverdale shows. That's all I remember. So let me ask you this, yeah. just because on your website, it says that you obviously played bass on The Brain That Wouldn't Die, the live record, Ben Weasel. Yeah. But it also says yeah. you engineered it. So engineering is basically, you set up the mics and everything? Yeah, that was, looking back, I should have had an assistant or a helper. But so you were recording the record and playing it. <laughs> and basically, I just threw all my, I threw all my crap in my station wagon. And thankfully you know the computer didn't stop recording because i wasn't watching it but you know i don't set up all the mics um most venues have what's called a splitter snake and yeah let's say they mic the guitar amp it goes to the soundboard for the venue but then it, there's a another signal that can go right. to the recording unit so they're kind of independent okay so i was able to record the show multi-track so i, I could i had a every mic was on its own track so i could mix okay. it really well yeah. and then i i set up like some audience mics, because obviously they wouldn't have audience mics for the, right. the live sound, but and like 
a couple other additional mics that the live sound guy wouldn't necessarily need, but good for the recording. But right. yeah, Just I remember. And shit. Yeah, I remember kind of being tired that day. Um, <laughs> you but, can't tell you on know, the set. That, how much was, of that was kept from the live? You know, like the big controversy of Kiss Alive, how they went back and fixed some shit. How much of that did you guys have to go back and like doctor in the studio? Oh no, we didn't do any. Um, fixing in the studio but i if i remember correctly we did two nights um okay. and maybe combine you know, took, the best tracks from the two yeah that's, that's pretty up. primitive um as far as it, you know we didn't do any studio fixing of, i mean yeah. i may have done some editing like if if somebody played a wrong bass note which i guess would have been me um <laughs> find it somewhere else on the song and, and Copy pop it paste in, you know? yeah but there was no like totally overdub. There was no overdub sessions where we were like right. redoing vocals or gotcha. anything. It was all, it was all pretty natural uh, in that regard. The record um, turned out pretty good, I think. I like how you can yeah. hear the crowd too, like in all the right parts. You know, it's cool. It, yeah, that's the key. That's the key to live recordings is putting out crowd mics. I mean, yeah, I've I've come across so many people try to do live recordings and take it from the soundboard, but there's so much missing. Totally. Um, but yeah, I, you know, there was really no budget for that record. Really. I I didn't, I don't even know know if we knew what we were making a record, but it was like, Hey, we're playing these shows at Reggie's. We should record them, see what happens. Yeah. So, you know, it was pretty low. I don't know. You know, I could have brought an assistant, but I probably wouldn't paying out of my own pocket. So I just kind (laughs) of toughed it out and, you know, set it all up. And like I said, thankfully, you know how computers are. They can just stop recording for no reason at all or whatever. Right. But luckily, it just kept rolling and uh, got lucky. Yeah. Turned out great. It turned out good for the fans, too. I like that record. Yeah. So, hey, Justin, when you're when you're playing with Screeching Weasel, um, how was... How just, just kind of a nerd question, but how was the set list determined? Like, did you guys... Did Ben bring the set list, or were you guys talking him into playing, you know, maybe older stuff or something, or was it all Ben or? Yeah, we, we got to talk him into playing some songs. You know, he definitely wrote out the core of the set list and, you know, we, we would really only rehearse like if we had a show, you know, if, if, if we went like a month without shows, it's not, we're going to practice every Tuesday night. It was like, we re- would really only get together the week before a show or, or yeah. a run of shows and run through the set list and see what's working. And, you know, we, he would definitely be open to us chiming in and be like, we should do this song or that, or this one's not working. I remember I thought it would be good to do the song goodbye to you at the end of one of the shows. And oh, yeah. we did it. I, I think it's a good song, but we did it once and then he didn't think it was went well. So we never did that again. But um, <laughs> what was like the one song that you just hated in the set list? Was there one? Um, trying to think. Not that I can think of right now. Yeah. I, I think mean, Ben usually, he knows what the people want to hear more than a lot of other bands do. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, when when we had a new album or something, it would, he would sprinkle in one or two, but he knew better than to like just right. totally do the whole new album that nobody knows. Um, totally. That has to be cool, though, to know that you, you, know, you were way into the whole lookout thing when you were young, and then here you are, you're in Weasel for the night. You know what I mean? It's just so cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I had an advantage of like, a lot of the songs were just burned into my brain yeah. as far as the, the arrangements and stuff like that. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a great bass player, but it was very easy to just jump in and do that. Slap at the bass. Oh, yeah. 
but mostly it was fun to see people having such a great time that never thought they would see the band. Totally. Especially at that time, he hadn't played in a while. And I know he's been playing a lot now lately, so it's not as much of a surprise. But right. back then, I think there's a lot of people that never got to see Screeching Weasel and never thought they would. You know, they're singing along to every word and having a great time. And that's that's really the fun part of it all. It's yeah. just seeing people experience that. So did you have more fun doing Riverdale shows or Weasel shows? Well, probably Weasel shows just because... That's what you grew up I didn't, on, right? So many more of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they just had more energy and yeah. were just way more fun. And diver you know, there's a lot not that, you know, if the average person listened to Screeching Weasel, they would think probably every song sounds the same. But um as a fan, nope. there, there was more diversity. Yeah. You know, in in the set. You know, there's faster songs, slower songs, really fast songs. You know, there's so it's more, a lot more diverse of a set with Screeching Weasel. Right. So when it came to the lineup that you played with, I know you were friends with Drew, of course, and Adam, but um, how did they, did you recruit those guys in, or is that, how did, the, how did that work? Yeah, I definitely recruited Adam, because, you know, Ben needed a drummer, and he wanted somebody from Madison, Wisconsin, which is where he was living, um, okay. you know, just outside of Madison. And, you know, it had to be somebody from Madison, because that's where we, we rehearsed. And Adam was the not only one of the best drummers I know, but certainly the best drummer in Madison that I knew of, um, or even Madison area. So I introduced Adam to Ben, and you know, obviously he made made the cut and did a lot of shows and did the album. Um, I think Drew was on Ben's radar already, though, from the Jetty Boys and yep, and other stuff like that. So that was that was a little bit. I think that was more of Ben's, you know. Um, what am I trying to say? That was Ben's basically discovery or idea to have Drew, Drew involved. Right on. That's awesome. So I've never met Ben. I don't know anything about Ben, but you know, from back in the day, some people would say he's he's an asshole or something. But he he, you never let on that to me. Ever. I remember the first time I talked to you about you know you were you were getting involved with Ben and everything seemed cool. Like he was. You know, even back to the demos, he was writing you back and giving you pointers, and then he signs your band, and you're, no offense, but you you were you were nobodies, right? I mean, you weren't. Oh, definitely. We had first record. Yeah, we had no um, business doing that, but. Yeah, and then you get, you know, you start working with them, and obviously you you join fucking Screeching Weasel, and you, he trusts you enough to bring in, um, you know, a drummer like you just said and stuff, and I'm just I'm just wondering like, why. Obviously, I know why you quit, and I know why the band quit, but um, he seems to always have different lineup changes. And do you think that's because... Well, why do you think that is? I guess I'm just wondering, because he seems like he's easy to work with? Or yeah. is it yeah. just people's schedules? Like, you know, I know Zach Damon has been in the band a couple of times, and now he's out, and it's like, I don't... Why would you want to leave that unless there was a situation like, like, like your lineup had? Yeah, I would say the large majority of lineup changes is just people's availability and schedule and, you know, life changes. Someone has a kid or has a job, yeah. you know, takes yeah, a different okay. job. I would say, you know, there's probably, you know, and I don't even know everybody involved in the band that's been in the band. I would say there's, I'm sure there's at least a few, you know, personality, you know, indifferences or arguments. But I would say the majority is just timing and, you know, time and place people's schedules and lives getting in the way right um so yeah he's 
very easy to work with. In fact, probably my favorite being in a band experience was with Screeching Weasel because you know the shows were always really well attended. We were mostly just flying out, so we didn't have like a lot of gear to haul around, um, and everyone was just having a great time. And Ben was in good spirits, so I mean, I have nothing bad to say about him. I know some people may, maybe they have a story that they heard that got exaggerated. I mean, he certainly had some issues and done some things over the years, whatever. But I don't even know the full truth to it all. You know, there's three sides to every story. And I have no bad stories to report uh, or experiences. Okay. In fact, there there was a sometime a couple of years ago, there was this like, there's a screeching weasel show in Chicago. I didn't play it, but there's a special Q and a type thing the night after for like VIP guests. And they brought up me and a bunch of people that were in the band just to talk about, you know, someone was basically asking questions and, one of the questions was like, tell a memorable story or something for being in the band. And I didn't really have any because especially, you know, back in the day, I'm sure they hung out together a lot and did like every little thing together. But, you know, in the two thousands, we weren't really, hang- it wasn't like we were just hanging out all day, every day. We kind of just got together to practice and do the shows. And there really wasn't a whole lot of like little crazy stories to tell. Hey. So, so like after the, the Austin thing, you guys leave the band um, I remember there was some, uh, Ben had posted some stuff kind of ripping on the band and you guys, you know, and stuff, but, um, obviously you, you still work with Ben, correct? I mean, you, you mastered baby fat, right? Yeah, I did end up working with Ben after that. I did, you know, I mastered baby fat. There might've been one other thing. Uh, I'm actually transferring a bunch of old recordings in for some sort of anthology, maybe, box set thing i i I can't really say because i don't know what it's going to be at this point but we're basically you know digitizing all the old stuff to get it ready to be something before the while the tapes while the tapes are still playable and right accessible Um, yeah so i I guess where i was going with that is it's just like um obviously there's it's water under the bridge at this point or i mean you you still work with him now so yeah and Part of me feels bad the way the whole thing went down. It was just kind of a, a strange situa- situation. It, it caught us all off guard. You know, we just put out this album. There was a lot of momentum and things going on. And the weekend that that happened, I was, you know, I was getting kind of sick with some kind of cold. And the whole thing happened, and we flew home unexpectedly. We're supposed to play another night in in Texas, and that that got canceled. You know immediately obviously obviously and uh and i flew home and was just super exhausted and sick and mostly sleeping and there's all these emails and things flying around like about what we need to do as a band blah 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 you know next thing i know there's a press release and i I admit that i did sign off on it but i was so out of it and not feeling well that i I didn't really think it through um, so if I could go back and do that over again, I, w- I would have maybe felt differently about it. But you know, right. certainly what happened is, was not a good thing. But I, I also don't think we handled it the best way as a band. But cool. it, it is water under the bridge at this point. Right on. You know, so I you woke up Monday morning and were like, wait, wait a second. I just fucking quit Screeching Weasel? <laughs> kind of. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't know what I was doing or I was on, like drugged up. But I was just kind of out of it and, and honestly didn't care. You know, it was and you got to. When that happened, I'm not saying it was the beginning of YouTube, but that was kind of the early days of social media. And like when something happened, 
it's immediately everywhere. You know, if that would have <laughs> oh, yeah. been, if that would have happened like a ten years before that, it, nobody would have known. It would have yeah. played out totally different. But that was one of the first times where, like, at least in my experience, and one of the only times that I've been involved where like something went down and it's it's on YouTube like ten minutes later and it's <laughs> spread spreading around social media. I mean, that was it was a bit of a shit storm, wasn't it? Yeah. Let me ask you this, Justin, just for uh, Nate and I. I might edit it out even, but it, to you, did it seem like a stunt? <laughs> <laughs> no. Because Nate has a theory that it could possibly have been a publicity stunt. No, it definitely, if it was a stunt, it was only discussed with Ben and himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not, I don't even think, it, if it was a stunt, you know, even our, his manager at the time was thrown off by it i mean he was definitely not happy about having to do south by southwest and i could tell there was some maybe storm brewing but i, I wouldn't have predicted that i mean that was just a bunch of bad things happening at the wrong time i mean it's quite bizarre i mean the, the yeah. person that that he ended up punching you know wasn't random you know she was definitely um, making herself known and being kind of annoying i'm not saying she deserved to be you know right punched at all i mean that's obviously not the case but it wasn't like he randomly wanted to just punch somebody it was it was kind of this perfect storm you know i think he wasn't too thrilled about doing south by southwest and it may have had different a different vision of what it was like for i remember some sort of discussion like that where i thought it was maybe mostly music industry people like with their arms crossed kind of judging all these bands and whatever but and that was my first experience at South by Southwest. You know, I, I was that was my first day there ever in my <laughs> life, and there's actually you know there's there's a lot of fans there like just for the music. Um, right. It's it's, it's kind of hard to get into shows and it's annoying. You have to wait in line, but I mean the venue was largely filled with Screeching Weasel fans and like you know there's a few music industry people hovering on the sidelines and whatever. But right. I think I think he didn't go into it with the best attitude and then. The perfect storm but d- definitely not a publicity stunt and like i said if it was he kept it 100 percent to himself yeah <laughs> I, I, to defend myself there jody i did go back and rewatch that you know yeah because i don't know i don't think i've watched it since and i didn't realize that that he had punched somebody in the crowd first and i certainly didn't know that that it was it was a woman in the crowd right justin that's my understanding i mean i again i, I actually haven't gone back and analyzed it because yeah, I think th- I think the video like there was a news it. <laughs> right. was on the news and it said you know like Austin Fox News or something and it said something about um, a woman in the crowd and then a woman on stage and I guess I didn't realize that because I just usually when shit like that happens it's like you just kind of gotta step back and just wait for the facts you know and I just oh, never yeah. really I watched yeah. it and it, like when he when he punches the girl on stage it's like it looks so fucking weird like yeah and i I could be wrong even though i was there but my understanding was it was a woman in the crowd like throwing ice and you know being annoying and then also the either the owner or the manager of the venue was another woman that came up because they may have even been friends and they both got kind of into it and you know i don't think it was staged because again i could miss remembering but pretty sure ben's wife was sitting on stage and may have been pregnant which is not oh, a position Jeez. you want to put your a pregnant no. woman you know you want to be starting <laughs> not at all and that, and that venue was super weird there was a backstage but there was no escape it was like this triangle and the further backstage you go it just turns into it gets narrower 
So like they had the security team had to form like a big like shield, a human shield to get us and Damn. people out of there just to get rid of all the the drunk people that were really upset and like uh, wanted yelling stuff. It was kind of intense for a little bit there. Mm. Um, so certainly I would say 100% chance it's not it wasn't a stunt. <laughs> I was mostly just fucking with Nate. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, it's, it's still kind of weird. It sucks the whole fucking thing happened. It sucks for everybody involved, you know. But he, you know, I don't know. I think he kind of, he kind of, he took some shit for it that obviously he should have. But I don't think it was intentional. I don't think he was. I don't think he's a a woman beater or anything like that. You know, he always, you know. No, in fact, it's it's the only negative thing i can say that i was happened when i was associated with the band i mean everything else was there wasn't anything close to that i mean that was like the one random bad thing that happened uh, yeah but, and it's too bad you know yeah i mean and there was a lot going on. you know there's this new record there's all this publicity to do i think like i said i can't remember the timeline but if they there was you know i'm pretty sure his wife was pregnant at the time with i don't know if it was their first born or you know maybe another one. i just don't remember but there's probably a million things going on and i think like i said it was just the perfect storm like if you take a few things out of that equation it probably wouldn't have happened but it just right. that's yeah. how it went down i hear you yeah all right so i'd be remiss i think anyone listen i think i they need to know and i want to know myself i mean how did you end up working with tommy stinson man i mean this guy's a legend i mean the fucking replacements come on yeah, well, a friend of mine named Ben um, was managing Tommy, you know, per- his personal s- stuff because Tommy would play with Soul Asylum and Guns N' Roses and all these bands. Okay. And uh, trying to think, you know, one time Guns N' Roses was playing in Chicago, and he had just Tommy just put out a solo record, so he wanted to do like an in-store at a little record store. So I basically learned like six songs and drove down there. My friends Tim and John had already played with Tommy, but it was my first time. We just kind of winged it, or wung it, however you want to say that. Right. So, you know, I did that, and then I'm trying to think. And then we did it. We were after yesterday's kids. Me and Tim from yesterday's kids started a band called the Obsoletes, and we we backed up Tommy on like a short East Coast tour. Um, didn't lead to much, but then basically he asked me to do sound for him, which I don't do a lot of live sound, but. You know, I think artists just want to have somebody that knows their material. Right. You know, like I'm doing. You know, I do a solo here. This this guy sings on this song, all that stuff. And yeah. uh, so I did. I did that for like a couple short trips, and then one of the trips, the his bass player couldn't make it. Sort of last minute, so he's like, "Hey, can you play bass?" I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> play. I'll play bass." You know, because you gotta have a bass player. Slap the bass, big time. <laughs> more more important than having a sound guy. And I was already planning on being gone. So, you know, just through my friend Ben, you know, managing him. And, you know, he was working on this new album and people kept saying it sounded like the old Bash and Pop stuff. So it just kind of made sense to call it that again. And sort of like the Screeching Weasel thing, you know, I did a couple shows with Build as Ben Weasel solo and they did pretty well. As soon as we changed it to Screeching Weasel again, when he got the rights back, you know, the the crowd's just about tripled probably right. they at least doubled and it's just kind of how it is people see a name and they're like yeah yeah it's a and, branding thing right and bash and pop was not obviously nearly as big as the replacements but 
for the diehard fans, it, it meant a lot to to call it that. And, yeah, totally. And a, but it's not like he was tricking anybody because um, the stuff, you know, it was more like Bash and Pops in a lot of ways than he in the first album because he really wanted to be a live band album. But I think on the first Bash and Pop record, he ended up overdubbing a lot of the stuff himself. It was basically him and the drummer right. and a couple, couple, you know, obviously some other people here and there but the the new album which isn't that new anymore is really much you know live live in his living room studio kind of thing um and it honestly doesn't sound as good as the first album just because of those limitations but it is what it is right but i mean were you a replacements fan as a like a teenager or anything yeah definitely and you know that's kind of the whole thing like by the time we got on lookout records we were kind of getting away from the ramones kind of pop punk and we were sort of going in that direction of some replacements type influences and it, it just didn't really fit in with the lookout record stuff you know by right. the time we did our second album so yeah definitely a long time uh, fan so it's, again that was pretty cool and, and another yeah. one where the songs were just so baked in my brain like it was easy to play and i could focus on other things like right. how's the show going and kind of reading everybody's vibe and and what especially with Tommy, like he doesn't always play everything the same. So you really got to be on your toes. It's like, you know, we're going to do this chorus only half as long this time, or, uh, we're going to just do this other Rolling Stones cover out of nowhere. So you got to kind of be on your toes in in that kind of situation. Um, or the screeching weasel sets were a lot more structured. Hey, Justin, I got to tell you that, um, when uh, I saw you play with Tommy on, um, or I should say Bash and Pop on uh, the, uh, what the Stephen Colbert show. Yeah. And I saw that one night and I was just like all pumped because I knew it was coming up, you know. And, yeah. and me and Tracy watched it and we're just like, dude, we're we're so proud of you. It was just like awesome, you know. We're like, that's fucking Justin up there, you know. And it was, it was just kind of surreal to see on TV and shit, you know. And then um, I do remember when uh, he did the, uh, the, chris gethard show <laughs> and i fucking stayed up and i was gonna watch that shit and it came on and dude you weren't even playing with him at that point and i think yeah. i wrote you and told you it was like fucking a huge disappointment oh, <laughs> I, sorry, like, yeah. I mean i still like bash and pop don't get me wrong but it was like i don't know you know i was just kind of like really thought it would have been cool to see you on tv again you know and it was like yeah let down a little bit but yeah i think I think that whole tour was like five or six weeks, and I, I just can't be gone that long from yeah. from my studio business. Or like, my head would probably explode with all the work that's backing up. You know, the, <laughs> that whole thing. And and Screeching Weasel was always like that, but it was always like short weekend, you know, not short, like three three or four day weekends every month or two. Like that's perfect. Yeah. Um, and when I started playing with Tommy, it was like that too. It was like short, really short things, you know, which was great. But once we actually put out the record and they want us to tour longer. I just, you know, I, I hung in there for a little bit, but there was like a five week tour opening for the psychedelic furs that would have been fun. Cause it's opening set, you know, 35 minutes and you're done. Nice venues, early set times, but, um, yeah, I couldn't be gone that long. And I, th- I think that was on that tour that they did that yeah. show. Okay. So can we, let's jump back to the yesterday's kids on lookout records thing. Cause, um, I was actually, I was kind of thinking earlier, like, um, I was a big Yesterday's Kids fan. I, I thought you guys were fucking great. You guys definitely strayed away from just the uh, 
typical Lookout Records pop punk sound, you know. Um, I always thought I could definitely. I knew you were a Replacements fan before that. And I knew you're a Weasel fan and stuff. But um, you know, you guys, you guys had songs that you could you could have played with Screeching Weasel. You know, one night and the next night you could have played with Tom Petty. You could have played the same set list and everything would have been okay. You know. Yeah, it was it was right in it kind of blurred the lines a little bit. And that's why, you know, I don't think it really took off with the hardcore lookout crowd because it was just it had too much extra stuff going on, but then you know, it was too maybe sounded too much like Green Day for the replacements people. I, I don't know. It was like it was right in the middle there and Yeah. But with that second record we had a what we thought was an enormous budget. Um uh-huh. you know, so we just tried everything. We're like, Hey, let's try every tambourine that we have in the studio let's uh <laughs> strings do, and you have do all yeah. these overdubs we, we kind of overdid it but you know we were just having fun like we just had this whole studio and what it felt like a limited time you know compared yeah. to any other session and the other weird thing was that was right when we started doing that album that was right when panic button got um sold back to lookout i don't even know how that all worked but ben and jughead stopped running it basically and lookout took it over and I think they just didn't know what to do with it and didn't really weren't super into it. So, you know, they were they were nice and let us do our thing and put it out and everything, but you know, we thought you know, we definitely didn't get any better tours or shows than we would have on our own or anything like that. It was just kinda you know, just kinda dissolved from there. Right. So, um yeah, from from yesterday's kids being a live band you guys were great, and then that Can't Hear Nothing record came out, which was um, certainly uh, looking back on it, you know, I you, I can see where it was, you can tell that there was a, a recording guy um, in the band, you know? Yeah. Um, because it just, like you said, all the shit in there, the all the guitars and the, the strings and the piano and everything, and um, it's a great record. Um, then after yesterday's kids um you form the obsoletes with tim and it's basically um it's basically the same band that's fair right it's just a little bit a little bit of a change sound um i know yeah. the absolutes still played a couple yesterday's kids songs and i always i always compared it to um like the replacements uh from bastards young to aiken to be that was yesterday's kids to the obsoletes you know <laughs> yeah i mean it was, that's probably what that's probably what the next obsolete or yesterday's kids on would have sounded like anyway. I mean, we had a different drummer. I know I had met yep. John Phillip. Basically, he came up and played. I had all these demo songs I recorded to a drum machine. Again, just because I was practicing. And sometimes I'd be stuck at the studio overnight because it was like 45 minutes from my house. And it's like I could drive home just to sleep or I could hang out all night and, you know, mess around. But I had all these songs recorded to a drum machine. And I had met John through a friend. And he came up to green Bay and like recorded real drums over the top of that. And I thought that was awesome. Cause you know, he could play a lot to a metronome and, or a drum machine. And like, he was just a really good drummer. So, and then he, I didn't really want to do shows, but he, I think he and his friend Ben, who ended up being our manager, um, really pushed us to like be a live band again. And I don't think, yeah. Then Tim, Tim, you know, Tim joined up cause we needed more guitar, and I actually played guitar in the first few obsolete shows, but eventually it just it just it, it reverted back to the three of us because it was 
it's so, when you're a three-piece band it's so much easier it's like less to go wrong like yeah. and we could just play so many more songs without having to practice it's like just kind of you know you get some of those bar shows where they want you to play three hours we could just make you know we could just jam on stuff with that um so yeah it, it just reverted back to the same thing with with a different drummer yeah i remember the um you guys did like a a totally country version of um, "Crying in My Beer," and uh, yeah, yeah, that that kind of goes back to the somewhere. whole the whole practicing. You know, why write a song? There's a million good songs. I really just want to hone my recording skills and and try new styles. You know, we had, we had a pedal steel player come in. That was my first pedal steel experience. So we got kind of out there a little ways, but. You know, like I said, you go see us live, and it was just a rock band. You know, guitars, drums, bass, nothing, nothing yeah, crazy. You guys are always a good live band, man. From both yesterday's kids and and the obsoletes, it was it was always good. So, um, not to dwell on the yesterday's kids stuff too much, but um, do you guys still ever do those reunions? Not too. Uh, they're they're less and less. I think yeah. a while back. Tito had like his five year anniversary or one of our good friends and he talked us into playing, but I think that was as the obsoletes, but at this point it's kind of all the same. Um, yeah. it kind of all blurs together, but it's been a while since we played and it, it probably will be. Um, it, yeah. John, John lives in Nashville. The yesterday's kids drummer, he's still in Wisconsin, but I don't know if he still plays his drums. Okay. Uh, so yeah um yeah i remember like years ago i remember seeing it after the fact there was a reunion and it was like fuck you know i missed it i think there was one at cranky pats if i remember right yeah and, probably yeah, it was probably someone's birthday party or anniversary yeah i was like you think or the wedding. fucking internet would tell you things or wedding <laughs> kind of sucks so it, it, so i read this on the yesterday's kids facebook page justin and i don't think i ever saw this before but um spin magazine had did a uh, 20 essential lookout record songs and this yeah. was from 2012 and you know yesterday's kids makes the cut they came in at number 11 with uh shadowy men you know wow um i don't did you ever see that it sounds familiar but you know, I follow so many bands that I work with too that it kind of blends into that whole thing a little bit too. Like I feel like Mr. T Experience was on there, pretty high up. Yeah. So, so Jody, Jody's a big Lookout Records guy too. So I'm just gonna run down the list. Yeah, starting with number down. twenty. Okay. So number twenty was the Donna's Rock and Roll Machine. Okay. Uh, so these are the twenty essential songs from Lookout Records. Remind you, um, number That's... nineteen was Roadkill by Blatz. Uh, number eighteen. Was, That's one of those bands I didn't really get to listen to. You know, I, for whatever reason, they weren't on my radar. Kind of no. skipped over that one on the mail order list. So but. did I. <laughs> I did too. Uh, number eighteen was "Way to Go" by Cub. Uh, Seventeen was "One Planet, One People" by The Lookouts. Uh, Sixteen was "The Groovy Ghoulies" with uh, Highwayman. Huh. Yeah, That's um, a good one. Number fifteen was. Cleveland, blo- Cleveland bound death sentence. Uh, they got that wrong, I think. Um, yeah, that's another band where I know the name. I couldn't even tell you what they sound like. They might even be great. I just didn't get to listen to it. Um, I think it's I th- if I remember right, 
it's uh, one of the guys from Dillinger 4 and Aaron Comet Bus, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah, not my thing. Anyways, number 14 is Raul. I think that's how you say that. Uh, yeah. Who, who 13, made this list? Some some dude at spin, I guess. So, hmm. <laughs> uh, number thirteen is uh, Sweet Baby. Yeah, I remember, we used to do some Sweet Babies. I remember that was some of the stuff. You know, we we're obviously into the Weasel stuff and Riverdale's, but there's something about that stuff, the Sweet Baby and Brent's TV that we liked because I think there's a lot of harmonies and just more pop elements to yep. it. Um, right. Yeah, I always thought that stuff was really cool. I got into the ne'er do wells early from that early lookout record, that early single they had on lookout. Um, yeah, I remember that name. But... Uh, number twelve is the Lillingtons. You're the only one. So I <laughs> completely agree with that. Should probably be a little higher up. Yeah, totally. but we'll see what's we'll see what's coming. Um, number eleven is yesterday's kids. O two shadowy men on a shadowy planet. If I'm lost, oh. 
definitely should be on the list. Hmm. Um, number 10 is The Smuggler, She Ain't No Egyptian. Cool song. I think they had better songs, but I can see why they picked that one, because it was fast. and. Yeah, I think that was like the only single they ever had, too, maybe. I remember easy. there was a, a video. It easy, yeah, it's easy to remember the lyrics, but I think they had better songs. But anyway. Um, number 9 was Knowledge by Operation Ivy. Oh, boy. And I, I kind of imagine they chose that song because of the... the the Green Day covered that, right? That's the yeah. So I'm thinking that's why they picked that one. Um, number eight is the High Fives, "Humping Away." <laughs> uh, number seven is Green Day, "Dry Ice." They have better uh, songs yeah. than that, I think. Yeah, it's not a bad one though. It's I'm not right, a yeah. huge Green Day guy, so um, number six is "Femme in a Black Leather Jacket" by Pansy Division. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's okay. I don't know I never could connect to the pansy division shit either man I remember it's interesting because especially at that time there wasn't a whole lot of lookout records stuff with like clean guitars you know eventually they started doing like, the high fives and smugglers but right back back then even musically it, it kind of stood out as being a little a little different and uh absolutely not necessarily bad but I think I only had one album of theirs yeah um, I, yeah, I had a couple albums, I think. I think I probably just bought them because they were on Lookout. <laughs> I do the same but, um, thing. Yeah, not horrible by any means. There's worse shit on Lookout, so. Yeah. Uh, number five is uh, Peter Brady by Screeching Weasel. Hmm. Good song, but I don't know if that's the essential Screeching Weasel song. Not even close. No, it's too short and it's too goofy. There's so many, like. <laughs> and it's better. got stupid fat mic, so fuck Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, number four is Crimp Shrine, In My Mind. I knew they'd Ugh. be on there somewhere. Ugh. Yeah. I liked Crimp um, Shrine, dude, when I was like 15. They were the shit. Um, I liked 15 when I was 15, I think. <laughs> but, right. yeah. Um, so I got to back up real quick, too, because on the website for number 13, Sweet Baby, the band they actually have listed is Sweet Baby Jesus. <laughs> so, which is, they fucked that up. Um. Number three is Love, Love, Love by The Queers. I love that song. I do, too. Yeah. Still, I I would have went with something else. I think I would have went with something else, too. Um, Didn't they have more than one version? Did they list which version it is? uh, They say it's coming from Grow Up. Okay. A classic. The the old one. Yeah, it's a classic one. Um, Number two is Brent's TV, Superwoman. Yeah. Uh, Just kind of surprising that Brent's TV makes it so high, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't expect them to be so high up on the list, but yeah. And then uh, number one is uh, the Mr. T experience with ba 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 ba. Yeah, it seems like whoever made the list maybe didn't wasn't too involved in the whole lookout thing. Like they just sort of kind of picked the hits. So yeah, we're familiar with it enough to do the list, but didn't listen to it extensively. But if you're if you're picking the hits for lookout bands, or I'm not I'm not gonna fucking choose Blatz or. Cleveland bound death sentence, or no. you know, fucking uh, I don't know, Crimpshine. Well, maybe Crimpshine, they were pretty big, I guess. No, but I just but, mean uh, in terms of the songs chosen, a lot of those bands you might expect, but they're just choosing like the, the, the most well known song, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. and I, pr- so, I would have maybe even done more than one song per band, like maybe, maybe there could have been two. Two queer songs or two weasel songs, you know. I don't know. Easily, like, yeah. I think I would have had a few Mr. T experience songs. It would yeah, have been exactly. like four bands on this fucking thing. Yeah, I think. Yeah, 
But I get um, their points. But, um, yeah, so your fucking band makes uh, the top 20 of, you know, such a an iconic and cool fucking label. It's awesome. The 20 songs. You're number 11, dude. So, um, Congrats. even though the <laughs> list is... Yeah, the list is the pretty list bizarre. Is, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> it's totally fucked, but you still gotta you still gotta admit that's hey, pretty cool for you, right, it. dude? Yeah, I don't know. I should see who made that. Um, how, how they came up with that. Yeah, he does well, um, after each little write up on after each song it says FP, whatever that is. I'm assuming that's the dude. Um but for Crimp Shrine, he did write uh, the first seven inch uh, still gets my vote for the best lookout record ever released. Mm-hmm. Shrine. So I don't know, man. No. Yeah, that kind of falls a little to flat. To me, the best so. thing that ever came out on lookout is probably my brain hurts, dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. somebody, somebody should make a new list, I think. Yeah. yeah. It, me and Jody will make that fucking list. Yeah, we yeah. Have, have an episode so. of our own, damn it. Set um, the shit right. You'll still be on it though, man. <laughs> so, well, I won't be offended if we if it has to be a fifty song list to be on it. <laughs> Dude, that song's pretty fucking catchy, man. Shadowy Men. That's uh that's a classic for me, dude. I love it. So So let me ask and, you uh, this because we're going a little long. Um of all the records that you've worked on, which one are you most proud of, dude? I mean, there's so many to choose from, obviously, but do you have one that really stands out that you're like, dude, I worked on this record? Um, I mean, I think, you know, Tarantula is probably a highlight, especially in the in the pop-punk world. Um, Absolutely. You know, some of the Tenement stuff stands out. To, you know, that's something I still like to listen to now and then. Um, I did an early Dan Vapid and the Cheats album that I think... That's we had a, a lot of one. fun with. A good we had one. a lot of fun with that one. Um, yeah, you caught me off guard here a little bit, but uh, <laughs> you know, I got to record some of the Reverend Norb solo stuff, which is you know musically not great, but a lot of fun memories of, of working with Norb and just seeing how he works and creates stuff. Um, you know, it was just entertaining for me to be in the studio with him. I hear you. Uh, you know, speaking of Norb, we did a. I don't know why we did this, but Norb wanted to do a Bob Dylan cover album, and having done two, one or two solo records with him, watching him trying to overdub everything himself, I was like, "Why don't you get a band and just you know sing over the top of it?" And uh, he ended up hiring the Obsoletes, and you know we did this Bob Dylan cover record, and Alternative Tentacles ended up putting it out, and I think a lot of people hate it, but. Is, that's the Nobsolete's thing? Yeah, that okay. was all. Yeah, because, you know, it's it's a novelty thing for sure. I, I still I hear it on the local radio here once in a while, um, you know, at night, real late at night. They'll play it and stuff. But, you know, we did a video for it. Um, so that's kind of a novelty thing that's fun. It's probably musically not that great, but. <laughs> it's a little it's, weird. It's a little weird, yeah, man. It's supposed oh. to be, though. But. I just couldn't sit and watch him do the drums and then the bass and then the guitar. You know, I'm like, this is going to be painful. <laughs> so <laughs> Bob Dylan would have done it with a live band and one or two takes and called it good. So, right. But he still got his Norb. He still got his Norbisms in there and it, it turned out. Okay. Yeah. 
So you also recorded, before I forget to ask you, you recorded uh, a replacement show, right? A few years back? or Yeah, it was uh, not their last show, but towards the end of their... Actually, I shouldn't say towards the end, but yeah, I think it was 2014 Midway Stadium in St. Paul, I want to say. I don't. It's either Minneapolis or St. Paul, but it's a, like a minor league baseball stadium, and it was the last show ever there. I think they tore it down after that. Um, oh, cool. It was pretty awesome to record them in their hometown playing a great show. Playing a great show, you know, it was like the whole baseball field was full of people singing along, having a great time. That's cool. Some probably never thought they would get to see the band. Yeah. Live. So, what's the uh, what what's the outcome of that? Is it, is that ever going to get released, or is that? I don't know. There's talk of a video, like a documentary. I think it's just basically stalled and shelved right now. I don't I don't have any inside knowledge. This is just me. Yeah. From what I know, I don't see any immediate release plans. But the way those guys operate, you never know. But I I think it's going to be a while before they. Are interested in having it released um, that's cool it's so. just it's still cool for you though right because you know you got to record like one of your favorite fucking bands ever right yeah that's and cool. i had a great seat i mean it was it was really <laughs> cold it was really cold it was september early september i want to say it was like in the it was definitely in the 50s it was really cold so it was nice to be under a little tent you know i got a side stage view a lot of people you know my friends thought i was out by the soundboard but i was actually on the side of the stage um, so got to watch it from the side of the stage and nothing went wrong. <laughs> then I got, I got to mix it and, you know, I get to listen to it when I want to, you know, great. You know, there's bootlegs of the show, you know, cell phone recordings, but this sounds pretty good. And I'm not saying that cause I did it, but I'm saying it cause it's like a direct, <laughs> it's a, it's a really pure direct recording of the show. I mean, it's not going to get any more clear, um, than that. So yeah, that was that's pretty cool, you know. And I, I recorded the sound check too, so there's a lot of fun gems in that whole thing that will probably never get released. But yeah. basically, yeah, there's no immediate plan, especially because they found that live recording from '86 or whatever, Max live at Maxwell's, which sounds awesome, uh, and they played a great show. You know, one of those rare nights where they were totally on. Right. So I don't I don't see this thing getting released anytime soon. But they did vi- they did film it on video, and there's definitely potential. But I, I'd be lying if I told you anything beyond that. Right. Still pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, it was great. I mean, like I said, everything went really smooth. I probably should have hired an assistant, but again, it was kind of fly by the seat of your pants. But at least they didn't have to play. But you know, it was, it was a big. It was kind of a big production. It was like an all-day ordeal, you know. Or I got there at 9 in the morning and setting up. But Wow. It's awesome, man. I cool. definitely won't forget it. I definitely won't forget it. It was a lot of fun, and hopefully it, it gets released one of these years. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Fingers crossed, man. So I just got one more question for you, Justin, and it's actually okay. from my wife, Tracy. She, uh, she wanted me to ask you, are you ever going to have your own fucking band again, or...? Are you done? I'm probably done <laughs> just because of lack of time. You know, probably in 2008, I recorded, started recording some more songs again because I had a little extra time opening the studio, but I never finished them, never mixed them because um, I do this for a living with other people's music. If I ever do want to take a day off or take a week off, which is really rare, 
the last thing I'm going to do is work in the studio for free on my own stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey. I, you, is that, is that, was that the batch of songs that I have? Probably. Um, yeah. Included the, the screeching weasel cover and the in excess cover and yeah, uh, I don't know what it is with the cover songs, but I just, for me, uh, like I said, it kind of gets the song right out of the way and I can focus on the engineering and production and try some ideas and know that I have a good song foundation. But yeah, I mean, there was a f- couple of original songs, but I, I don't see it happening anytime soon or probably ever. Those I were just, good songs, man. I, just, I mean, they were acoustic. So Jody, these were, I think it was like maybe 10 songs, if I remember right, Justin. And uh, mostly yeah. pretty mellow stuff. There was a couple just just acoustic songs with just you yeah. singing and stuff. But um, yeah, he did a, I can't even remember what Screeching Weasel song it was now. Do you remember, uh-huh. Justin? Falling, falling apart. Yeah, and it was just nice. you and some strings, right? I mean, there's drum. I kind of did it. Was it a full band? Eventually, it, it was. It was like if that song was on the third Big Star album, where it's kind of weird and spacey <laughs> and acoustic. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of a weird interpretation of it. Yeah, it's certainly the weirdest Screeching Weasel cover I've ever heard. But but I think it's a great song, great lyrics, and oh, absolutely, uh, that was a good batch of songs, man. So. Yeah, so t- I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to say I didn't like playing live, but I would definitely like the studio side of things more. So I don't really foresee doing a band that plays live again like that. Right. You, know, I, you know, I was able to jump into some of these bands because the songs were already written. You know, I could go out and p- grab my bass and jump in and learn some Screechy Weasel songs or Tommy Stinson songs, whatever. But starting your own band from scratch, it's a whole different thing that i just don't have the time or bandwidth for um and you know i had to be kind of sl- like i didn't think i was ever going to play live again but at that time it's like i couldn't really say no to playing with screeching weasel because <laughs> i knew the song so well and i knew it was going to be a good experience and then i thought i was done and then i can't really say no to playing live and bash and pop you know it was, it was these things i really just couldn't say no to but i wasn't necessarily looking to join a band again so right on um yeah tell her tell her no sorry that's <laughs> all right well if you ever do a uh if there's ever uh yesterday's kids or obsolete reunion you know for whatever reason shows um let us know dude we'll be yeah, there it could happen in maybe like 2025 <laughs> yeah well that dude i'm be, gonna i'm gonna contact as... him i'll bug him about it and then he'll bug you and we'll just make it happen yeah, I'm sure he'd like to hear from you. I mean, he's he's still around. He's on Facebook a lot and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, so. hit him up and let us know if you guys are ever in Milwaukee doing stuff with the kids. or. I will, dude, for sure. Yeah. Anything so. like that. Cool. Uh-huh. All right, so before we go, let's plug your website, man, in case somebody needs some mastering or mixing or any kind of audio sweetening in general. Yeah, it's just it's mysteryroommastering.com and... I really am only doing mastering now. Like I've I've tried to mix a few records, but I just don't have the time for that. Mastering is just such a quicker process. But yeah, if if you need any mastering done, that's mysteryroommastering.com. There's there's kind of a, a handy page that tells you all the prices and options, so it makes it real easy to know what you're getting into. Um, so that's that's where you can find most of the information. Cool. And, so if anyone in the band listening, dude, you need to get your shit mastered by this guy. I mean, just think of all the great records he's mastered that sound phenomenal. Check it out. Yeah, I had I when I was doing the label, Justin. I you know I used you a few times, of course, 
And um, I really didn't know what the fuck I was doing, you know? Yeah. And um, you were really good to work with. I mean, obviously, we were friends and stuff, but um, yeah, just to, I think anybody can pretty much contact you and if they have any questions, I think you're, you, you'd be willing to just, uh, you know, talk somebody through the process and shit. And yeah, it's a big a part good. of it, just communication, talking people through it, because it's kind of a weird area that they're not, everyone knows. Not everyone, but recording is pretty pretty clear. You know, you record the songs, you mix them, but mastering is this gray area where you're transitioning from being creative to being technical and having to release it on all these formats. Especially now that vinyl's more popular, you know, there's 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 things involved to make sure it still sounds good on vinyl. And you know, I'm happy to walk people through that and make sure everything's as good as possible. Awesome, man. Well, yeah. thanks for having me on. You know, like I said, I've when I heard you guys were doing this, I started listening to, you know, I think it was the Riverdales episode, and then I ended up listening to them all. I, I happened to be doing a lot of driving that week, so I was like, this is perfect. I'll listen to these, and it brought back a lot of memories. So glad yeah. I got to chat with you guys about this stuff. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Justin. Very interesting yeah. conversation. Very fun. No thanks, Justin. We appreciate it, dude. Keep up the good work, and I hope you guys can keep doing more episodes. We're going to try. All right. Well, have a good night, guys, and we'll too, talk to you soon. Yep. Later. All right, folks. So there you have it. Our very first guest, Mr. Justin Perkins. That was pretty cool, huh, Nate? Yeah, that was cool. Uh, you know, um, dude's certainly done a lot of cool shit, right? Dude, yeah. But bunch of cool bands we fucking talk about. He's fucking oh, worked with. You yeah. know, uh, you know, we didn't even get into. He's done mastering for like. You know the Mangies and shit, even and you oh, know Mr. So T many and bands, Dr. Yeah. Frank and it's like damn. So yeah, yeah, it's pretty um, cool. Very cool. I'm glad he gave us a little bit of his time. I know he's a pretty busy guy. Yeah, that's awesome. So we appreciate it. Yep. Thanks so much, Justin. And thanks for listening to all our other episodes, man. I didn't know he had listened. That's pretty cool. So yeah. So the other thing is, I got a plug for him is go check out Yesterday's Kids. Um, just Google them. You'll find some shit. Um, couple great records out there and uh and then he had a band a little bit more of a you know alt country kind of sound after that called the obsoletes they're still cool so check them both out oh, that's yeah. it all right well we're gonna wrap this one up i've been jody i've been nate you've been in the dummy room we'll see you next time peace Say-